Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. We're continuing our series on the word of the Lord, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. In just a couple chapters, Elisha actually passes away, finally, for some of you. We're going to be in chapter 11 today. And we're still cleaning the house of Ahab from the land of Israel. Cleaning Ahab's house, so it's house cleaning part three. And we'll see this central truth as we walk together through the word of God, that Christ's kingdom will never die. Christ's kingdom will never die. So if you have a copy of God's word there with you, I encourage you to take it. If you don't have your own copy, you can use one in the pew racks there in front of you. And we'll read 2 Kings, just the first few verses as we begin. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Well, it's been a few weeks since we were walking through this section of 2 Kings, but we've been in the middle of this long purge, chapters long, of Ahab's house. The history of Israel is filled with failed kings, but 1 Kings 16 tells us that Ahab is kind of a, a unique case. He did more evil than all the kings in Israel who were before him. He's a whole new level of bad. 2 Kings chapter 9 saw the executions of his son, King Joram of Israel, and his grandson, who is referenced here, King Ahaziah of Judah. And in the process, they wiped out Baal and his idols in the northern kingdom of Israel. So we're pretty much done with Ahab up north in Israel, but we've still got to deal with Ahab down south in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Athaliah. We've actually met Athaliah before, but it's been some time in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 26. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. So she's the granddaughter of Omri, but the daughter of Ahab and likely, though not stated explicitly, Jezebel. Jezebel, she's dead. But her character lives on in her daughter, the queen mother in Judah. We've seen an ongoing battle for some time now between Baal and Yahweh and the effort to rid the land of both Baal worship and Ahab's house. But this is what we can see. Lying underneath all of this is another more important and more intense conflict. In Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of Adam and Eden, as they ate the fruit in the garden, disobeys God's command, God promised what we call the first gospel, the first promise of the coming one. That the son who was coming would crush the head of the serpent, though the her serpent would bruise his heel. And we know by now, as we read through God's word, that the fulfillment of that promise will come through a son of David, the line of David, the king of Israel. So chapter 11 brings this theme to life. Will the promise of God fail? By now we've had many kings and many sons slaughtered. There's just one remaining, Joash. It comes within a hair's breadth of ending right here in chapter 11. And as we reflect on this, we remember a promise we see repeatedly in God's word. 
after Moses died, Joshua 21 records, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. But because Israel is so forgetful, after making that promise in Joshua 21, Joshua 23, Joshua is dying, passing from the scene. And Joshua says in his final words to Israel in Joshua 23, you know in your hearts and souls, you know all of you that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord your God has promised you have failed. All have come to pass for you. Not one has failed. Yet Israel is not the only forgetful nation. Because we're so forgetful, the Lord reminds us again. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Blessed be the Lord who has given us rest to his people. According to all that he has promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Will the line fail? It cannot die, because God has promised it will continue. In spite of the best efforts of Satan, in spite of the best efforts of Satan's helpers, the king is rescued. King Ahaziah, grandson of Ahab, he's dead. In a move worthy of Jezebel, her mother, verse 1, Athaliah destroys all the heirs to the throne except one. Verse 2 tells us that Jehoshaphat, King Ahaziah's sister, performs a move reminiscent of what we see in Moses' life. When Moses is delivered, when the Pharaoh of Egypt tries to kill all the Hebrew babies, or in the life of Christ, when King Herod attempts again to kill all the babies in Bethlehem, Aunt Jehoshaphat stole Joash away from the nursery, and she hides him and his nurse in another bedroom. Then they get his nurse and him out of the castle and hide him in the temple for six years. This is a remarkable deliverance. The prince saved. The line of David survives. And the promise of God to rescue his people, it lives on. But look again at the beginning of verse 3. He remained with her six years. Hidden. Six years. Six long years. Six years of Athaliah, as we see the theme of God's faithfulness to his promise, so as we read scripture, we see the theme of waiting, delaying. God promised, God will be faithful. But the day of deliverance hasn't come yet. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Lamentations 3, 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Isaiah 40, 31, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We see this over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. We could go on reading verse after verse like this. And then after waiting, Jesus comes. We arrive in Matthew and Jesus, the promised son of David, is here. And what's next? More waiting. Galatians 5 verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We heard a beautiful exposition of Galatians 5 the last two weeks. And there in that same passage, God says, Wait. Galatians 6, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Titus 2, verse 13, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does Galatians 5.22 tell us? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Or as the good old King James puts it, long-suffering. That sounds really bad. Why is this long-suffering, why is patience so important? Because slow to us and slow to God are two very different things. I mean, 2 Peter 3 the chapter a lot of Christians, of, some verses a lot of Christians love, 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, talk about God's eagerness to save people. But it tells us something about the character of God himself. Do not, look over the, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as we count slowness, but he is patient toward you. Why is God waiting? Why is God delaying? Why do we long for and look for Jesus to make it all right again? He is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He delays so that we might turn to him. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary. Don't give up. In due season, you will reap if you don't faint. Trust in the Lord. Trust his word. Lean in to Christ. Look to Christ. Wait for the Lord. Wait, I say, wait on the Lord. He is not slow in fulfilling his promise. He is faithfully, inexorably, unstoppably bringing his purposes to pass. And while you wait, you can trust his word. You can trust his goodness. Trust his faithfulness. As Hebrews 10 verse 23 puts it, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The king rescued. And in his seventh year, the king is crowned. Let's pick up reading now in verse 4. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and with the guards, and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them, and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath, and guard the king's house. Another third, being at the gate sore, and another third at the gate behind the guards, shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you, which come on duty in force on the Sabbath, and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king, shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death, but be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were good off duty on the Sabbath, with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave the captains the spears and shields that had bed King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar in the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son 
and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. Well, in verse 4, we meet a new character, Jehoiada. We don't know much about him. He just, as happens sometimes in Scripture, appears on the scene. He's not the only person in our Bibles named Jehoiada. And after the next chapter, 2 Kings 12, he just disappears again. Well, what we do know from verse 9 is that Jehoiada is a priest. And if you look down just a little bit into the next chapter, verse 2, you see that Joash, as king, will do what is right in the eyes of the Lord because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. So Jehoiada is following the word of the Lord in a land of godlessness. And he now protects the heir to the throne. He saves the line of David. Since Joash is hidden now in the temple, it makes sense that there have to be people in the temple in league with Aunt Jehoshaphat and his nurse. So in verse 4, Jehoiada brings together soldiers to arrange a plan to restore the rightful king to the throne of David. The captains of the Karaites and of the guards. The Karaites are hired soldiers, likely from Crete. Uh, if you read earlier in the Bible, it's likely that they're also part of King's, King David's bodyguard. The parallel account to this one in 2 Chronicles 23 tells us the names of the commanders of these soldiers. Jehoiada unites the palace guard and the temple guard in his plan to place the king on the throne. Soldiers are divided in thirds. One third stay on duty. They're over guarding the palace as usual. Athaliah, presumably in the palace, won't notice what's going on. The other two-thirds, one on duty in the temple and the other supposedly off duty, come together to guard the crown prince. They can do this without arousing suspicion as people come to the temple to worship. Verse 7 tells us they came on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house on behalf of the king. So people are used to seeing many soldiers in the temple on the Sabbath. Apparently they've been coming in force for some time to guard the worshipers there, and this makes sense in the day of invasions and idol worship. On this particular Sabbath day, however, rather than heading to their normal stations, some rotating off, they are to surround the prince himself with weapons in hand and kill anyone who attempts to break through their ranks. Second Chronicles 23, as it lists the names, tells us there are five commanders of hundreds. They also gathered Levites and clan leaders from throughout Judah to protect the crown prince. So now in the temple there are hundreds of soldiers gathered around a little boy. Psalm 121 is a beautiful promise to God's children. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Who is it that protects your coming and going. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. And in the case of little Prince Joash, how does the Lord protect his going and coming? 
Verse 8, be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. Jehoiada's care for the king reflects the character of God himself as he ensures there's a buffer of protection around the king as he goes out and he comes in. Verses 9 through 11 tells us the soldiers did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded that even men who were scheduled to go off duty worked an extra shift to protect the king on this day. They used weapons from King David's army to protect King David's son. They surround the king and crown him. Verse 12, he brought out the king's son. He put the crown on him. He gave him the testimony. They proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. What a moment. After six years of that woman, a king is crowned. It's a royal ceremony. Political move. Taking the rightful heir and crowning him. Yet in the midst of this ceremony, in the midst of the soldiers, the intrigue, the weapons, there's a remarkable note, and we read it quickly, and it goes by you like that. Look again at verse 12. He put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. He hands him the word of God. The testimony is the covenant. It's likely that these are the Ten Commandments, a copy of what is stored in the Ark of the Covenant, a copy of the words of Yahweh governing his people. God's priest places the crown on the king's head and a copy of God's word in the king's hands. It's a reminder that submitting to the word of God is the most important character quality in any leader. It's easy for us to get caught up in what we do, in our plans, in our efforts to bring about what we want, and to forget who it is that numbers our days, the one who protects our going out and our coming in. It's easy for us to get caught up in our business, to get caught up in all these things so that we lose sight of what is essential, the Word of God itself. Oh, brothers and sisters, we must be people of this book. It has in it the words of life. We must lean into the word and devote ourselves personally to it. But if we stop there with ourselves as individuals, we've missed the boat. I mean, this isn't the first time that Jehoiada, the priest, has read the word of God. He has devoted his entire life to the scriptures. And 2 Kings 12 verse 2 tells us, Joash does what is right in the eyes of the Lord because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Yet this moment is a reminder to Jehoiada, but not just to Jehoiada. It's a reminder to us as individuals that God's covenant isn't primarily with one person. It's with us as his people. We, we all together must be people of this book. How do we form Christians that look like Christ? We form Christians that look like Christ in Christ-like churches. And how do you form Christ-like churches? Christ-like churches are biblically formed churches. Well, how do you deal when you're in a land like Jehoiada's and it's not a biblically formed culture? Well, the king has been crowned. It's time to secure the kingdom. Let's pick up now in verse 13. So Athaliah is back in the temple, but when Athaliah, or in, in the, in the uh, castle, palace, when Athaliah heard the noise of the garden of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, 
there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, Bring her out between the ranks, and put to death with a sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house. And there she was put to death. So queen mother, or queen imposter, Athaliah hears the people shouting, Long live the king, rushes to the temple. And there he is. The thing she has feared for six long years, the thing she has tried to prevent from happening, has indeed happened. One survived. And in a sign often associated with repentance, Athaliah tears her clothes. But she ain't repenting. She's taking on the trappings of repenting grief without bowing her heart before the king of kings in true repentance and faith. So instead of crying out, as Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me! I am undone! I am a man of unclean lips! She cries something far different at the end of verse 14. Treason! Treason! Well, what irony. Who actually committed treason? Athaliah. I mean, she accuses others of treason when she's the one who committed the crime. She's the one who killed all the little princelings. She came within a hair's breadth of succeeding, stamping out the line of David and the line of Christ. The serpent almost won, but not quite. Athaliah's accusation is the way of treacherous people. They throw accusations like javelins when they're the ones throwing the actual javelins. But Jehoiada knows what to do. Verse 15, bring her out. Put her to death, put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. So she went through the horses to the king's entrance, to the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. The very house she stole, she dies in. Well, now, now that the kingdom has been secured, the Lord brings revival. The kingdom is revived in verses 17 through 21. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. Verse 18. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces. And they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord and took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the king's. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. Jehoiada now takes the law of God, the covenant, the testimony, the one he presented to the king, and he reminds the people of their covenant commitments. 
in God's covenant with Israel find a repeated refrain that we find first in Exodus chapter 6. And then over and over throughout the word of God, I will be your God and you shall be my people. This is the essence of this covenant relationship. A home, a heavenly father, a place to belong. It's not about a set of laws. It's a relationship with this father, the king of kings. God reaches down into the orphanage of this world as people are wandering, harassed and helpless. And he says, you, you, you're my child. You, you're coming with me. Imagine with me this morning that we're not here in a house full of people, but we're somewhere, maybe in Eastern Europe, maybe in the heart of Africa, and you walk into a room full of crying babies. We're there in this orphanage, and you look around, and you are overwhelmed by what you see. I mean, what human being can see this and respond by not caring? And you went there planning to save one child. And as you walk in and you see child after child after child, malnourished, neglected, lying in a bed, lonely, uncared for, parentless. Your heart is overwhelmed with grief and overwhelmed with care. And you think, how? How am I going to decide? How am I going to decide which child to save? Who do I take home with me? And then you walk through and your eye falls on one small infant. And you hear the cry of this infant and the Lord knits your heart to this one. And you reach out in love and you pick up this child and you hold it close to your chest. The child reeks of urine and excrement and spit up. And yet somehow in spite of the physical repulsion, you feel an attraction for this child that you can't explain. And you say, this one this one's mine. This one's my child. That's my son. And you take that child, you clean them, you feed them, you give them your name, you give them all that is yours. That's not a child. That's your son. That's your daughter. That's your child. Well, in our case, we walk into that orphanage, overwhelmed, and because we're human, we're dealing with finite resources. I mean, who of us can't see all the brokenness in the world and realize we're dealing with more brokenness than we can handle? But God's invitation to a home isn't like ours. I mean, our invitation is a summons with limited possibility. Limited resources. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't take them all. But not God. God issues an invitation with unlimited resources and unlimited possibility. He says, come to me all y'all who are heavy laden. All who are weary. And I will give you all rest. Oh, friend. Are you weary? Are you worn out from pursuing your own way? From seeking the good life anywhere only to find out it's not good? 
It offers disillusionment and disappointment. Christ calls you all, come to me. And when you come to this one, this Savior, what is he like? Come to me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. But you say, what? But, but what about me? What, what do I have to do? Are there any expectations? He says, well, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Christ is the best master. And as Galatians teaches us, in submitting to him, we find true freedom. Oh, friend, would you turn from your sin? Would you turn from your own way and run to Jesus? Would you trust him, lean into him with all that you are and all that you have? And if you find yourself here this morning wanting to believe, wanting to believe that this could be true, there's a father like that, adopting children like that, and you could be one of them. If you find yourself wanting to believe that that could be true, yet unable to believe, would you pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? Well, Jehoiada's efforts to be faithful to God's word don't stop with him reminding them that you are God's people. When the covenant is renewed in verse 18, then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces. They killed Mattan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. Finally, finally they've purged the last vestiges of Ahab's evil and idolatry from the land. Baal worship finally dies in Judah. You see, brothers and sisters, sin and idolatry aren't things we can mess around with. We can't play patsy with evil and then expect the Lord to bring revival. True spiritual life can't thrive as long as we feed our flesh. The poison of self-interest and pride choke out our joy and hunger for God. We can't want God in our own way at the same time. Some of us have hungered for our own way for so long that we don't even really remember what it's like to truly hunger for God. You know, like the psalmist says in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Oh, friend, do you long for God himself? <laughs> well, maybe you're like me. You're saying, yes. Yes, I want that. I want God. I want to be able to sing with my whole heart that the things of this earth are growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I want that. But then the things of this earth pop up and they're so bright and beautiful. And it's hard to see around them to actually see Jesus. And as we reflect on this, we begin to realize what a gift earthly trials are. I mean, in this weird, ironic way, when the things of this earth are bright and beautiful, Jesus grows dim. 
But when the things of this earth grow a little tarnished, the luster wears off. The pains of life remind us life isn't all it's cracked up to be. Then the supposed beauty of this world begins to dim, and Jesus grows brighter. And we lean in to the truth of God's word. And we find that this word is like a solution that we dump over ourselves. And as God, God's word washes over us and in us and through us, it cleanses the muck of this world from our eyes. And as we look to Jesus, we begin to see him a little more clearly. Oh, the things of this world, they're there. They're calling our name. But then we hear our Father call. And we see our brother Jesus. And we hear his voice in his word. The more we see Jesus, the brighter and more beautiful he grows. But then one day, we'll stand before Jesus. Oh, that's terrifying. His eyes are like a flame of fire. There's a sword of the Spirit coming out of his mouth, which he judges the world. And we imagine all the times we've loved this world. We love our stuff. We loved money. We love sports. We love sex. We love food. We've proved that we can make an idol out of almost anything. And we think, I'm not good enough to stand there. It's true. I'm not. I mean, these aren't false accusations like Athaliah's. It's true. I'm a lover of self, not a lover of God. I love money. I love this world. And then we remember, I won't be standing there by myself. We remember, God has promised in Hebrews 8, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And we remember, no, 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 no. I'm not hoping in my obedience, in my faithfulness. But in his, Christ, our brother, stands beside us. And God, our father, says, welcome home, my beloved child. You, you are mine. You see, the parent standing beside the bed in that orphanage doesn't adopt that child because of the beauty of that child. That parent doesn't adopt that child because of anything that child has done. The parent welcomes the child home simply because the father loves his children. And God, our Father, welcomes us, not because of what we have done, but for the sake of our Savior Jesus and his immeasurable love for us. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then we'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.
God, we thank you that you have sent the spirit of a father into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Lord, this morning we come and we admit it's true. We haven't done all the things that Athaliah did. We're sinners condemned under the law of God, and yet we come to you fearlessly, confidently because of Christ. We ask, God, that you would work in us, work among us. Lord, would you change us to be like Christ? We pray this in Jesus' name.